0: Welcome to the Choya Needles Show. Last week's show featured wind, sunshine, and traffic. Well, this week we recorded the show on September 20th, 2019, in the Mojave Moon Cafe. So you will enjoy dishes clinking, espresso machines drinking, customers talking, children laughing, and readers reading. The organic approach of Ellen Baird, our moderator, was perfect for this environment. The readers and the pieces they read will appear as a headline while they're talking and on the show notes attached to this podcast. We'll also include it on our website, choyaneedles.com. So now, kick back, relax, enjoy the love and chaos as it happened at the Mojave Moon Cafe in 29 Palms. On Friday evening at dinner time, good times for all.
1: Uh, my name is uh, Douglas Tibbets, and uh, lived up here for three years. Love to write poetry. I call this the love prayer. Father in heaven, teach me how to love, for your love shines from heaven above. Forgive me of all that I've done, for I am better than no one. For all that sin, the Lord knows where you've been. For in time I pray that love would find a way. For only time will tell, I've been through so much hell. For there comes a time and a place when a sinner is saved by grace. And your love stays the same every single day, every single way. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. You are better than no one. first poem I ever did in 2008 called First Glance All my words and thoughts are not enough to express how I feel When I first met you I knew it was real All it took was just a glance And I knew I had the chance to tell you how much I care. All these feelings inside are hard to bear. So I just pray that one day you you, you will find me too, standing hand in hand together as one, together as two This is the first time reading in front of a group of people like this.
2: Yeah. You.
3: We're really My name is Mike Vail. I live uh, part-time in uh, 29 Palms on uh, Canyon Road. Her father had followed her there. While they made love, he crouched behind one of the trucks, glaring at the pair. He was so filled with rage that he could barely see. He raised his face to the sky. God, why did you give me a whore for a daughter, he hissed between clenched teeth. When Julio finished, he got to his feet and hitched up his trousers. Shamala pulled her beautiful skirt over her chubby legs. The sounds of the carnival. Parker shouting, musicians playing and singing, villagers laughing, drifted between the trucks. I've got to get back to work, he told her curtly. They're going to be looking for me. Julio, she began. I'll see you later, he said nonchalantly over his shoulder. I'll find you and say farewell before we leave. For several minutes, Shamala remained seated on the blanket as still as a statue. Trying to understand what had happened to her, she sensed that somehow, the last few minutes would change her life. Finally, she stood. Instead of returning to the carnival, she crossed the road and entered the empty church. The carnival sounds followed her through the open doorway. Moving to the first row of pews, she kneeled and produced a rosary from a pocket of the skirt. Pinching a bead between her thumb and forefinger, she began to mechanically recite the formalized prayers that the priest had taught her. It was past sunset before Chamala returned to her family's shack. After leaving the church, she spent the afternoon wandering along the shoreline. Her life had seemed so simple before. There was her family and the sea and the desert. There were the neighbors she had known her whole life, and there was mass on Sunday. But her life had grown infinitely infinitely more complicated, all in one afternoon. She'd been forced to think about right and wrong, about guilt, about love, and about herself. Nothing seemed to make sense anymore. Her father crouched next to the doorway, waiting for her return. Sweating profusely, a strange look filled his eyes. Jamala's body trembled as she stared at him. He was gripping a large metal wrench with both hands. She turned and stepped back down to the road, her eyes filled with tears. Why would he want to hurt me, she asked herself. She began to run. She passed the darkened church on the graveyard. The sandy lot where the carnival had taken place, empty now, was covered with trash. She stopped running. Ahead, the road disappeared into the desert. She knew it continued for many kilometers. There was a town down the road with stores and restaurants and a hotel. (coughs) Railroad tracks passed through the town. And trains passed, and trains stopped at its station. She had heard that the trains traveled all the way to the border with the United States. She turned back to the village. The tears ran down her cheeks. She knew she would never see this place again. Shamala turned her back on the village and began to follow the road.
4: So this is called The Firebug and the Stolen Water. What pleasures singed the arsonist's face as he watched the oasis of Mara burning? Last year, I stood in a scurry of footprints around his handiwork, charred trunks topped by cinderized palm fronds, as ugly as a bad haircut. Did I stand on his tracks, the exact spot where the footprints of police and firefighters converged on his guilt? The other day, I saw that the, palm, that the fan palms were growing back. I was relieved. At home, I worried about our trees. Hungry jackrabbits stripped away the bark of the desert willow. With chicken wire and trucked in water, the tree finally kept its promise of purple blossoms. The park service buys the same water to keep the oasis on life support. First mining then blocks of houses siphoned away the aquifer. The arson- arsonist didn't know that fire stimulates the uh, palm fronds, the fan-, fan palms. He saved the trees he tried to burn. The fronds are now as bushy as a full head of hair. So, this is called trazodone. Every resolution returns to the beginning. Night broken into fragments, sweat and small dreams. My head solo where the pillows overlap. Antidepressant works for four weeks, then back to four hours of sleep. I say, no more. Cold turkey, stomach cramps. Cut the pills in half, says the pharmacist. Every solution drawn in quarters. You'll never sleep if you don't divorce. Panic attack in Beaumont. Insomniac behind the wheel.
5: Okay,
4: thank you.
2: Uh, I wrote this uh, in a place near Napomo. (laughs) It's called Oceano. Do me, do me. Zachary lies supine on the trampoline. On the grass below, his shadow resembles an upright form, rising, floating, with no direct connection to the earth's surface. Zachary is not yet a teenager. His voice is high and too loud. From head to foot, he is black. Hair, shirt, shorts, and slippers. And three, two, one, check! Loen bounces Zachary back to life. Zachary's soft body rises nearly 10 inches in the air above the trampoline. You did it, you did it, you brought me back to life. My turn, yo, my turn to be dead, yo. Bring me back to life. The third boy is smaller than the other two. No one knows his name. His shirt comes off and on as I sit in the shade of the trumpet flower vine-covered veranda. He wears no shoes. I am watching and listening. For all the boys care, I may as well not be there. They know the rules. As only one boy is allowed to bounce at a time, a game has been created. Resourceful boys. And three, two, one, check! Loan bounces the boy at least a yard above the trampoline top. Yo, you did it, yo, you bounced me back to life. Ha, ha, yo, I flew so high. Did you see me, yo? The boy's shirt comes back off. He holds the frond of the palm near the short edge of the trampoline. Okay, your turn. Loan is the oldest. At 13, he is the one who bounces the boys back to life. His legs crossed as he charges them, rising them from the dead. Lie down. Lie down, I'll bounce you back to life. And three, two, one, check. Again, the boy's light body is lifted and his shadow contorts on the grass. Peter Pan-like, it sails in impossible postures. The boys are flying. The fog and the sunlight dance all day in the blue sky above the grass the palm tree, and the roof where the boys watch the planes land into the sunset. Like Wendy, I give the boys spoons and napkins. On the roof, they eat from a gallon plastic tub of vanilla ice cream. Let's go down now, yo, says the boy whose name no one knows. I want to be dead again. I had to try to figure out how to say what I wanted to say without the people who I wanted to say it to knowing what I was saying. (laughs) And and, uh, the people who knew what was happening know what I was saying. So um, this is a letter from the editor from the last edition of how I don't know all that much about coyotes. I suppose most of us don't. Oh, don't get me wrong. Plenty of people study coyotes. Even then, the number of people who claim to know about coyotes is still smaller than the number of the rest of us who know even less. What I know about coyotes is limited by my observation of them. I'm not keen. I happen to live where they live, and I see them from time to time from a safe distance. I hear them more than I see them. I hear them when I sleep, separated by the four walls, the 12 by 16 structure built recently compared to the coyotes' existence. Unless I make an attempt to get involved, I will retain my ignorance inside of my enclosure with my limited knowledge. When I sleep, I hear coyotes near my house, and the sound is loud, wild, unconstrained, high-pitched, and a little scary. I'm not scared. The sound is scary because it sounds reckless and passionate. If I have an interest in understanding the sounds I hear in the dark from the security of my dwelling, I could easily ask. I know a biologist. I could inquire. Because I don't, the sounds are indecipherable and I cannot assign meaning to them. That's not to say that the sounds lack meaning. Contrarily, I lack the ability or desire or both to ascertain meaning. What is unknown then remains scary. (laughs) Anthropocentric fears exist in us whether we hear coyotes in Wonder Valley or in Joshua Tree, again, Most of us do not know much about the areas outside of our frames of reference, and things which are unfamiliar can seem threatening. We must remember though, humans have free will. Being social creatures with high levels of reasoning and the ability to express thoughts through oral and written communication, we can choose to inquire, therefore enlightening ourselves through logical knowledge. When we understand, we can appreciate and even love things previously unfamiliar and misunderstood. When we love, we do not fear. Without fear, there's the possibility of peace. And what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? In our lives, there are many things we do not know. Some we may choose to allow to stay mysterious, unknown, mystical, beautiful, and wild, unascribed, others though we inquire of and invest in. As long as our inquiry comes from a place of reverential curiosity and not of fear of and eventually destruction of the unknown, we must be ethical, we must be responsible.
5: So I'm gonna read from the survival of Chola needles, thirty-three. Awesome. It's not mine. <laughs> For now. Make
0: hey, sure you introduce yourself. <laughs> Shantel.
5: Memories. I am writing my memoir. It's not that I'm so special. It's that I am unique among millions. Everyone should write their memoir. For each is also unique among the millions. It should be a tell all. It should be about all the stuff nobody knows about you. All the stuff that went unsaid was too embarrassing or too bad or too gross or too insulting or too unkind. Or, so exquisitely wonderful, it made your heart soar. But there was no one there to so share it with. Tell all about the people you loved who never knew it, and why you so resented sun and wished them a horrible death. I am writing my memoir. It's a tell-all. Well maybe not the unkind bits
6: this one is entitled ascension it's been a while since i've read it so. ascending from the ashes of my death sleep i recall him saying think for heaven's sake think for my own sake i stopped thinking experience history Cruel mistress, cruel master, this mind virus, their addictive offspring. New faces pay old debts. Old faces know no absolution. Each day of replica of the long before, patterns worn old by use from the moment of I am tired. I seek rebirth. Such intellect, they said. Only the past brought into the present, wrapped in the same bowl that will bind it in the future. For my own sake, I had to stop. Stop believing in what I am told. For those who told me were themselves told. And by whom? The only truth in any spoken word is found in the depths of the listener's soul. I began to listen to my own inner voice, understanding its sound for the very first time. At last, there existed no differential between my sensibilities and my truth. Skies once filled with dust, clarity broke through. Walls that once divided silently fell, no sound, no debris. A dove cooed from my shoulder. It thought I was a dove. (laughs) I am the one who forgot that I am. I walked on water, no longer knowing that I cannot. I now understand what the cricket thinks. I can sing its song. Creation sings that very song. Can you hear it in the distant ball?
7: I'm going to read from Station Eleven, and this is, for those of you who haven't read the book, this is after 90% of the population has died, Um, and this is a list of things we no longer have. An incomplete list. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below. No more ball games played out under club lights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. No more films, except rarely except with a generator drowning out half the dialogue and only then for the first little while until the fuel for the generators ran out because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years. Aviation gas lasts longer, but it was difficult to come by. No more screens shining in the half-light as people raise their phones above the crowd to take photographs of concert stages. No more concert stages lit by candy-colored halogens. No more electronica, punk, electric guitars. No more pharmaceuticals, no more certainty of surviving a scratch on one's hand, a cut on a finger while chopping vegetables for dinner, a dog bite. No more flight, no more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows, points of glimmering light, no more looking down from 30,000 feet and imagining the lives lit up by those lights at that moment. No more airplanes. No more requests to put your tray table in its upright and locked position. But no, this wasn't true. There were still airplanes here and there. They stood dormant on runways and in hangars. They collected snow on their wings. In the cold months, they were ideal for food storage. In summer, the ones near orchards were filled with trays of fruit that dehydrated in the heat. Teenagers snuck into them to have sex. Rust blossomed and streaked. No more countries, all borders unmanned. No more fire departments. No more police. No more road maintenance or garbage pickup. No more spacecraft rising up from Cape Carnival. No more internet. No more social media. No more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches, cries for help and expressions of contentment and relationship status updates with heart icons whole or broken, plans to meet up later, pleas, complaints, desires, pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween. No more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. No more avatars.
8: the way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves up in. Machinery that gives us abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people.
1: Doug. Yeah, I'm Doug. I'm talking about your dad, man. Oh. He's great. Oh. Is he? Yeah, his name is great. Cool. I got a quote I can give you, sir.
9: Percy Biff Shelley
1: said, Poets are the unseen legislators of the world. There you go. Amen. Right on, guys. <laughs> thinking of you. As I sit thinking of you, I often wonder if you ever knew that love can come and go at any time. And how I wish you were mine. As time goes by, I often wonder why things happen the way they do. Oh, if you only knew, that I'm thinking of
9: you. you I'd rather have a discussion about politics. (laughs) There's this guy named Donald J. Trump who thinks he's... President, I don't consider him a president. I try not to think of him at all, and it works out best that way. I guess that's my problem. There you
5: go.
0: Charles Bukowski. As the world reaches its final foolish conclusion. I realize that nothing has been learned. That's exactly what Greg said. There go.
3: I'm going to read a poem called The Ravens. One afternoon pickup trucks with license plates from Iowa and Missouri and South Carolina and bright red bumper stickers urging other motorists to lock her up, pulled up before the old white house at the end of the unpaved desert road. The Marines soon filled the pair of plastic trash containers they found behind the house and set them out front without bothering to push the lids down tight. That night, a big wind came along and blew the trash far and wide, filling the darkness like an invasion of pint-sized ghosts. When the sun rose over the barren hills, rappers from Del Taco and Burger King mingled with instructions on interrogating prisoners of war and letters from the Veterans Administration, all impaled on the great choya's needles for as far as the eye could see. Not long after that, a pair of ravens arrived, eager to eat whatever was left, slathered on the fast food wrappers. When they finished, the loud blackbirds filled their beaks with discarded love letters from lonesome sweethearts and wives and flew together to the nest they'd begun building in the rocky hillside above the valley floor.
4: So this is called the wedding ring in the glove box. One of the birds, the female, waits at the top of the fence like a piece of good news in a mail slot, as the other threads in and out of the fence until it reaches her, and the two suddenly fly into the air in unison, two hands clapping for joy. They move on to the next section of backyard fence and repeat this ballet until they're close to the kitchen window where I'm standing. Peterson guide in hand, my thumb unconsciously falls on black-throated sparrow, white eye bars and dark throat patch, a match. My thumb gives the wedding ring a habitual twist and I think they're coming together and we're coming apart. Since we're going to an event together, today would be a good day to take off our wedding rings. I don't. Over dinner, you show me your hand, no ring. I take my ring off and put it in the glove box of the car. Like a good couple, we're in sync even when we aren't. Now I'm at the kitchen window looking for the mating birds, but they're gone. My thumb feels for the reliable edge of the ring. The raw empty space in my finger surprises me still. Thank you.
9: This was written by one of you all. Um, Trump, hours after deporting Upa Lumpas to Lumpaland, discovers he is it was always us and them, and them and us, but our parents told us it wasn't true. They told us a hush, our parents lied. Now our parents have died, now it's us and the little rich boy who used to like to pick fights and there was no one around to break it up. In summary, let me just say that even though Adamas couldn't have predicted the end of the world was caused by an orange man wearing a wig with small hands.
8: It bothers me that people just are disconnected from reality, but at the same time I have faith because people like you that exist in the world that are doing things like this create a vibration through space and that vibration is like a thought right before you die and you say, what do I have to live for, what have I lived for? And those voices, your voices, echo through time. Like, and they they exist in people that want to hear it, even if they're not here. Like, they can feel that. And when people are able to realize that it's not all about what you need, it's about what the person next to you needs, I don't know, my point is is that I really hope that you guys continue doing what you're doing because I think this is the kind of stuff that's going to give humans a voice again. So, yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah.
2: Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com.
0: Well, thank you for listening to the Choya Needles Show. What a great half hour. The readers and their pieces will be listed in the show notes and at our website at joyaneedles.com. I love sitting here on the poetry porch watching the wind and just enjoying your company. So we'll see you next time we have an adventure.